It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast project. My guest for this episode is Sicilian-born Maria Grazia Butita. Among many other things, she's the author of the book, Now I See, where she talks about battling blindness, mental illness, and an espresso habit. So we'll visit with her about the book, and maybe she can help me with uh, my espresso habit. Maria Grazia, thanks a bunch for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you, and uh, I'm interested to learn about cone dystrophy. This is something that you know a lot about, is it? Yes, I do. (laughs) Tell me about cone dystrophy. What is it? Sure. So first of all, let me just start off by uh, saying that I was, I received my diagnosis of cone dystrophy when I was 14 years old. Cone dystrophy is pretty rare. It affects about one in 30,000 people in the United States. So I don't meet a lot of folks with cone dystrophy. So cone dystrophy affects the cone cells in my retina, which is the portion of the eye that helps us see in bright condition. And so when I talk about cone dystrophy, I always like to start off by explaining uh, my symptoms. Um, and again, no two people are alike. So you might find that there's somebody else out there who has cone dystrophy and maybe has a totally different experience. Um, so again, no two people are alike. But so some of the symptoms that I experience because of cone dystrophy is photophobia, which is that extremely abnormal sensitivity to light. And so I wear sunglasses all the time. And I know, John, you and I have kind of talked a little bit about this before. Yeah, I do. Um, I wear sunglasses uh, anytime I'm outside for sure, too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe we'll talk about sunglasses in a little bit. Yeah, I think (laughs) I, I think I have some opinions. Okay, I'd love to hear it. So another symptom that I experience is color deficiency. I can tell between dark and light colors. Uh, but again, I always joke around, like, never put me in charge of, of throwing a gender reveal party because uh, <laughs> I will not be able to tell, like, you're pink and blue. Like, don't, don't do that to me. So um, what, what, when you say color differences, uh, give me... Uh, uh, deficiency. Deficiency. Color deficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me an example of that. Like you can't tell necessarily between pink and blue, you're saying? Exactly. But maybe light or dark you can? Yes. So if like I could tell, let's say the white or gray colors, for example, I can tell like they're like on the lighter side and maybe I can guess it's like, oh, it's gray or it's black or it's white. So any color that's like very neutral, for the most part, I can kind of guess. But when it comes to blues, green, purples, pink, I can't really tell with those kinds of color. And again, the color deficiency is due to that cone dystrophy and the fact that I don't, the cone cells in my retina are not working properly. Now, I don't want to get too far off track here, but we're talking about cone dystrophy. And my yes. understanding of the eye is that there's cones and rods. Yes, absolutely. Do those guys play together or against each other? Typically, for people who have never heard it, right? Like I said, cones are the portion of the eye that helps us see in bright condition. And then our rods help us see in dark and dim light. So my rods are working a whole lot better than my cones. That is why I find myself doing a whole lot better navigating darkness and dim light 
So I'm like a night owl, always with my cool shades on. Um, so I have 2200 vision in dim light, but anytime I'm exposed again to light and it could be natural light, it doesn't have to necessarily be like a beach day, like sunlight it could just be natural light. Um, I'm completely blinded. So I can go from like zero, having no vision, just a big cloud to it's dark, dim. I can kind of like get a, get around. Um, I still ride my bike, et cetera, of course, with a lot of assistance um, from my mom. Uh, anytime we try to bike ride and everything. So yeah, and then that's 2200. And again, you know, I'd probably add that, you know, cone dystrophy isn't straightforward. And I think for me and my condition, a lot of people ask, you know, the question of like, what can you see? Or what is cone dystrophy? And the truth is, because of the cones, my vision changes based on the new details, new environments. And obviously, the big major issue for me is light. Light is like my worst enemy. Mm, yeah. I, something that kind of went through my mind as you were describing that is it's similar to me too, an, a, an experience that I would have going to the movies during mm. the daytime and which is something I, I don't like to do uh, since my vision change. Uh, but I think everybody experiences it. You go to a movie at like noon uh, on a sunny day and you're in there and you're in the movie and it's dark and then you leave the movie and you walk outside and it's like, bam, this, all the light hits you. So I imagine exactly. that's pretty difficult. Um, that's pretty much, that's a, exactly. That's pretty much like cone distributing on nutshell. Like anytime, that's such a great example. I've never thought of. Um, I mean, I'll usually say like, Hey, you know, imagine somebody pointing a flashlight in your eyes and that's what cone dystrophy feels like. And that's why, even though I wear the sunglasses, cause people think if you wear the sunglasses dark enough, shouldn't that help you see? But the truth is, no, it, it helps my eyes so I don't get headaches, but it's not going to help me see anything, but it will block some of that light that will cause headaches, et cetera. Is there an adjustment period when you go into that transitional lighting or is it just pretty much all or nothing or, or on or off for you? It really is this on or nothing. Um, yeah, and unfortunately with cone dystrophy, it is for me. Uh, that experience. And so, like I said, it goes from zero to like, again, that big cloud to comfortable um, in dim light. So, yeah. And you said you were diagnosed when you were 14. So bring me up to life up to age 14. Had you ever noticed anything different about your vision? I mean, was it that way since birth? So, um, so I have an interesting story and background because I was actually born, um, hopefully the listeners know, uh, based on my name, which by the way, John, you did such a great job. You said my name so good. Oh, I've been you practicing must be a, for weeks. <laughs> you must be Italian. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you took Italian back in your school days or something. I like Italian uh, food. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, but so I grew up for the listeners who don't know me, I actually grew up in Sicily. I was born there and I actually did not have a very normal, pleasant childhood. I was misdiagnosed a lot. So, you know, growing up teachers and my peers, they noticed that I couldn't see well, that I would always bump into things. Um, but it was never clear as to why I would go to doctor's office and they couldn't figure anything out. At some point, they just thought, hey, nothing's wrong with her eyes. I think she's just stupid. 
and you know i'm in Yikes. like second That's not any yeah good. i'm you know i'm in second third grade and i start becoming very afraid of doctors and just speaking up and and you know it's a really vulnerable age right you're sort of told whatever you're told you're kind of you believe what you're told at that age Absolutely. Um, but but you know what again i was so blessed my parents they weren't taking no for an answer they kept pers- persisting we traveled went to chicago which is where i actually got my first diagnosis it was not accurate but we got super close to my actual diagnosis at 14 with cone dystrophy so absolutely i grew up with no resources no tools um it was school was challenging and a lot of people ask me like how could you not have known and i tell them i you know i guess i was born this way and i had no idea what I should have seen because I never knew yeah, what didn't 2020 have to vision. It to, yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, I knew something was wrong, but it, it, there were so many. Like I was, you know, I'm six years old, five years old. There's so many mixed messages. Um, at that age, you don't have a really good perception of like what's going on. And um, but like I said, very blessed. My parents had great parents, have great parents, wonderful parents who really wanted some answers for us, and we we finally got them at 14. And is there anybody else in your family that's been affected with cone dystrophy? No, I've only been the lucky one. You are the lucky uh, one. Yes, I am the lucky one. I think I read somewhere where it's like I had a greater chance of like getting hit by lightning or something than actually getting cone dystrophy. Wow. (laughs) So it's pretty rare. I don't meet a lot of, I don't meet a lot of people with cone dystrophy. So it was, you know, again, that one in 30,000 people. So it is, uh, it's a pretty rare eye condition. And is there any research on the horizon or any work being done to, to look into this or are there any, anything to hold your hopes to? Honestly, no, at this point. I mean, I was just at my ophthalmologist, um, ophthalmologist a couple of weeks ago, just getting some new sunglasses. Again, it keeps coming up, um, getting some new shades. And, you know, again, we had that conversation, um, you know, but unfortunately at this point, there's not a lot of research done, there's a couple of things that are, are being done. Of course, we know we've heard about gene therapy, et cetera. But when it comes to the uh, cone dystrophy itself, it's a little bit more complex. Um, and so it wouldn't apply to, unfortunately, cone dystrophy as of yet. But I'm hopeful technology is amazing. You know, I, I, I have some expensive taste in cars. So I, I need time to save up before they find a cure. So that would be like the uh, the Italian cars, I guess, maybe Ferraris or something. Exactly, uh, Lamborghinis. Lamborghini. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, but I, uh, yeah, I do like some sports cars, okay. but uh, but but no, you know. Um, um, but you're saving you up know, for that day. I'm saving. You know, I have to. You know, I have to. So I need more time. So <laughs> to save I, anyway. I tell, so it's not a good so, time anyway, right? Yeah, timing is bad. So they, I. They can take all the time they need because I don't have the cash right now. Gotcha. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. Smart. So what are some common misconceptions that you get or that that you think people may have about blindness in general or visual Mm -hmm. impairment or maybe specifically about cone dystrophy? Well, I mean, you know, I can tell you like some of the things that I've experienced personally and, you know, because cone dystrophy is so different than the typical you know, maybe eye condition, et cetera. Um, I, you know, a lot of times I find myself people questioning uh, my status as legally blind or cone dystrophy because, again, 
I can go from like zero to 200, you know, like not seeing anything too comfortable, right? That 2200 vision. So, you know, and I, I always like to tell people, you know, blindness has a spectrum similar to, let's say, the autism or ADHD scale. There's a scale also for the, the different spectrum for blindness as well. And so there are obviously different types of blindness. No two people are the same. Um, and I can't emphasize that enough. I think a lot of people in society, when they hear the word blindness, they just assume immediately go there, like you cannot see anything at all, right? And so, you know, the same thing, I walk around with a cane. And, you know, at times, people feel like, oh, you know, there's a cane, or there's a seeing eye dog, like that's only associated if you can't see anything at all. Um, so I think that's sort of society has this sort of lack of understanding when it comes to blindness. Um, so that's what I experience. I think the next two that I can think of is one is, um, and John, you'll have to let me know if you've experienced any of these as well. But one of, one of the things I experienced personally is like, I'm legally blind, but somehow I'm also deaf, partially deaf or something. Because people will often like talk a little louder to me mm-hmm. um, or yeah. assume like you're blind, legally blind, but I wonder if she has like another disability or other disabilities. So let's just, just to be safe, let's cover ourselves and like start yelling at her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's something I experienced. And then there's this notion of like, I was born with this, obviously, even though I was diagnosed at 14. But there's this notion of, oh, wow, you must be so used to this. It, like, you've lived mm. with this. Like, what's the problem? And, you know, again, I've learned to adapt. I've accepted cone dystrophy. But it doesn't mean I got used to it. You know, there are challenges every day in my life. Like, there's always a new challenge, right? Getting from point A to point B is a challenge. Um, I'm always challenged by light. I'm always challenged by new environments, details. So, so blindness isn't something like I think John and I'd be curious to hear sort of like your perspective on it but you know it's not something like oh you get over no I don't think um it's something that you get over either it's it's something that uh you you live with and uh, adapt to pretty much constantly because Mm -hmm. you know even people without disabilities have to adjust to things all the time anyway. You know, schedules change, things change, people change, places change. It, there's always things that are changing in life. And with, with some sort of an impairment, and, and in our case here, visual impairment, that it just makes those adaptations more necessary and more important and sometimes makes them a little more difficult to, um, to get to. And yes. just kind of makes, makes more simpler tasks uh, complex. Absolutely. And something else I think you mentioned about the spectrum of vision. Uh, most people are not aware of that. And things like podcasts, things like books, things like what you're doing and who you're working with to kind of educate people on these things just makes that better for everybody involved. So it's mm-hmm. less awkward and less, well, I guess maybe awkward is the best word for it when we have these types of experiences. But as you were ex- describing your the spectrum and how it's it's different for everybody and how most most people think that if you're blind or vision impaired that just means you have zero vision and then there mm-hmm. is the spectrum in the middle and the word that comes to my mind of course is ambiguous you know mm. you might call yourself ambiguously blind as well too because your vision does change throughout the day based on the environment that you're in 
and it's difficult to stay in the same environment all the day, all, all the time, you know? So you have to move around, you have to do things. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, things change and right. not everybody can, can understand that. And it's, um, it's a lot of fun to, uh, yeah. especially to come up with all these adaptations all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's lots of fun. <laughs> now, you've mentioned a cane, and you also mentioned a dog earlier. What do you use for mobility most of the time? You've also mentioned a bike, so um, maybe it's a bike. I don't know. No, no, no. That's just the the bike is just a, you know, hobby, right? Okay, that's love just for recreation. To, okay. Yes, love to uh, work out as much. Again, you know, mental health, well-being, right? Um, so as far as mobility, you know, what I use is, um, I do have a dog and you'll probably hear him bark at some point and maybe you already have, uh, but that's just a, you know, a pet at home. He's my little guy. He's a Shih Tzu, seven years old. Uh, his name is Happy and he's very, very happy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's not a seeing eye dog or anything like that, but I do use a white cane, which by the way, I try to name all my Casper, uh, my canes. Typically, I like to name my cane Casper, like the friendly ghost. Um, And again, you know, we talked about this notion of like when people don't understand something, they often sort of, they could either, it's like that fight or flight response, right? They can either just like flee, run away, or they could just freeze, or they could just be afraid of it, like not knowing how to react. And so uh, Casper is just a cute name and, you know, that seems to kind of break the ice, but that's what I use. I mean, I am my most comfortable when I'm with my cane. And the reason being is, you know, even let's say I go to, you know, a supermarket, for example, right? And I know the environment and I know where everything is, but, right? And so I may feel, look and feel very comfortable and confident. But, you know, let's say I accidentally bump into somebody and I don't have a cane. Oh my goodness. You know, it was already bad before COVID. Now with COVID, God forbid you touch anybody, accidentally bump anybody, they get really upset. So, I mean, really the cane is sort of a way to let other people know, hey, I can't see well. Um, And so for the most part, I, you know, that's what I use mostly to get around. And the sunglasses, obviously, um, you know, they're a part of me too. So, yeah, so let's talk about sunglasses now. Oh, yay. You have, you have some, a few pairs of sunglasses. You know, it's funny because it's like, I'm almost thinking in my head real quick, like how many pairs I own. And I'm just going to go with the 10 plus just to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, so I have the um, types where they are prescripted and they go through a lot of coating, uh, polarized UV anti-reflecting coating um, to make sure they are dark enough. We get them. I mean, They'll come back to me and say, is this dark enough? I'll say no. Like, so we try to go as high as we can to make sure I'm, you know, my eyes are protected. Um, And, but then I like my stylish sunglasses, you know, and, um, you know, I always say, you know, if, um, I don't know, I think it should be a model, like model sunglasses. So anyone listening out there, sunglasses, um, companies, professionals who want to, you know, market their product or something. Give me a call. I'd be happy to. Maria Grazia some, is the one. <laughs> I'll be able to put some shades on, right? It's so part of my life every day. You know, I might as well use it to my advantage, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, I feel the same way. So do you get these glasses? You mentioned they're uh, maybe custom made, at least the tent on them. 
So yes. is that pretty much what you have are those or do you can you go to a you know department store or, or a sunglass place and just take a pair off the off the shelf? I do both. So if let's say I'm working or doing something that I need those like dark dark shades um you know I'll, I'll go with the prescription. Uh, but let's say I'm sort of going somewhere and, you know, do I really need to, I have people around me, I don't really need to be as concentrated or focused. Um, and I just want to look, you know, stylish, then I'll just pick one of those sunglasses and throw them on and, you know, feel really cool. But for when, you, <laughs> when you're on the red carpet and all the paparazzi's taking the, the pictures and things, you exactly. probably need the super dark ones though for that though, I would imagine. Yeah. I, you know what? That's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good point, uh, John. Probably. I would agree with that. Yes. And I've, I feel like technology probably plays a pretty big role in your life too. I mean, it plays a role in everybody's life, but Absolutely. I think uh, for sure in my life and I, I would guess in yours, it, it plays a pretty big role too, does it? It does. It really does. I mean, you know, I always say if it wasn't for the technology that we have today, I don't think I would have got through grad school or, um, you know, it just my credentials without it. It's just been amazing. Um, as far as technology, you know, I use JAWS, which is a reading software. Um, but a lot of the computers nowadays are just amazing. You know, with the narrator, I know Windows is, you know, pretty accessible overall. I'm not a big Mac fan. Um, don't find it as accessible, but um, so I like Windows products for for that reason. Um, and again, this is all just my preference. It's not like one thing works for everybody. This is more of like again, I, I try to talk about my experience and what works for me. So Jaws and magnifications, and you know, a lot of great apps out there like uh, Singai or uh, KNFB for, um, you know, if I need access to a quick print or something like that, like, you know, somebody hands you, for example, a business card and you could just scan it and real quick, it can read some information for you. So little things like that have, they really have helped so much. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I'm a Mac and a windows guy. I got my mm. foot on both sides of that, uh, door and, uh, I'm not sure I've been windows for so long. I'm, I'm converting to Mac and um, they do different things, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. They're different to begin with. They have to be, or otherwise there, there wouldn't be wouldn't be two of them. But um, it, it is interesting, the difference between the, the two platforms and the, the technology. I feel like Apple really embraces the accessibility uh, much. Uh, they, they seem to be the most embracing of accessibility. Mm -hmm. Windows is, is coming along. Um, but you mentioned JAWS, which is going to be the, the third-party app. Um, I use ZoomText on the Windows okay. side, which is made by the same guys that make JAWS. It's just the magnifier instead of the, yes. the, the mm -hmm. full screen reader. So there are a lot of options, which is great. And I, I had yes. an interesting question posed to me a couple of weeks ago by a friend that we were talking about podcasts and, and some things and about my vision and was asking, you know, what, what do you think would be different if if – I had an acute uh, illness, the reason my vision changed, in 1998. And he said, well, what do you think it would be different if it happened in 1988 or if it mm. happened in 2008, you know, like 10 years on either side of that? And mm. it's, it's a question I've really, I don't have an answer for yet. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks, just kind of playing through all these things. But, you know, technology certainly has made things better. So the if, if it happened 10 years later... Uh, it would be interesting to see, you know, kind of what, 
how how technology would have probably sped up things for me and, and mm. for most. Um, but at the same time, the the more low tech we are, seems like technology can sometimes make things you know a little. It can also make things challenging, and it adds maybe some extra layers of complexity in certain areas. And so maybe without any technology, I I don't know that life would necessarily be horrible um, Mm. because we'd have a whole different way of thinking about how to deal with things and and with the ease of technology. So I don't know how really to answer that yet. I've still been thinking about it, but uh, technology is is such a vital part of of what I do on a daily basis that kind of helps uh, uh, even the, the playing field. Yes. It is, it is. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned that because I've been asked like a similar question. Like, so I was, you know, like I said, I received my diagnosis at 14 and I get the question of like, well, what would your life have looked like if you would have been diagnosed at four years old, for example, right? Uh, I got my first pair of glasses, huge glasses when I was three. And so would your life have looked differently? And like you said, you know, there's a part of me that says yes, but then all this great technology that we have now obviously we didn't have back then so I really don't know how much it would have sort of made a you know that big difference um so absolutely it's something I always think about too like would it look different for me would I be in a different spot if I had the diagnosis early on so I don't know I like like you said like you I'm kind of always thinking about it and I'm 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 not sure I imagine there was a lot of technology that went into the book writing process for you. You're an author. Yes, I am. And tell me the name of the book. It's Now I See, but what's the subtitle? Sure. So it's called Now I See, How I Battled Blindness, Mental Illness, An Espresso Habit, and Lived to Tell the Tale. Yeah, the espresso habit. <laughs> so there's like a there's an Italian theme running through this whole thing anyway with the sports cars and yeah, right. the, uh, the Sicilian background, but uh, what's going on with the espresso? Yeah, I know. So, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in, you know, in Sicily. And so early on, I could just remember, um, you know, my grandmother giving me my first like espresso when I was a kid. And they're like, oh, my God, I know there's probably a listener going like, oh, my God. Shame on them. Don't you, know, you have to be kid. like 21 or something? Or, or... Yeah, right. And, <laughs> you know, but again, it, it goes on like our culture, right? Like we have wine when we're, you know, I had my first beer maybe when I was five. And, I, and I'm not talking a whole beer, maybe like a sip. But I think that the idea, um, let me explain myself better before parents <laughs> like go into panic mode. Yes. But I think the idea is, you know, exposing our culture said, hey, I'm going to expose you to wine alcohol because by the time you're an adult, you're going to drink responsibly. And so that was sort of like my culture, right? We're making we're making it part of our day-to-day living. So we're having a meal, we're having wine. And believe it or not, I mean, I love my wine today, but I'm not a big drinker at all. Despite the fact that I was introduced to the alcohol early on, I would say that sort of, for me and the culture, I think that was... Um, that was really important. On the other hand, though, the caffeine, I love espresso. Um, <laughs> I can have espresso all day, and it's obviously not good for a lot of reason. A lot of caffeine. I do have some anxiety, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's not good. But uh, so um, I, I'm working on it, um, getting better, <laughs> reducing the caffeine. Um, but again, you know, we all 
have our habits, our little habits that we love and some that we don't really love. And so my weakness is espresso. So where's the best espresso? I mean, it can't be Starbucks, right? Oh my goodness. I was, when I first came to New Jersey, United States, um, I think I did somebody encouraged me to get like a espresso at Starbucks. And I was like, Oh my God, that's terrible. It's like, it's like burnt, mm-hmm. right? That's how I explain it. And it, it's like, it comes in this, like, even when you go to restaurants and you'll say, oh, I want an espresso, you know, it's like they bring this large cup with espresso and it's burned and it's, there's so much in there and it's like, that's not how it is. And so I would say the best place is my house. Mm. Yeah. You make it yourself. Yes. That's, I mean, we, you know, we Italian style um, and it's, it, you know, it can't get any, but obviously every time I go back home to Sicily, I mean, that's, of course, the land of the espresso, right? It can't get any better than that. So do you have like a, a machine that makes it? I mean, I mean, obviously you have a machine, but I mean, like, um, not like a pod machine or do you make, do you grind it yourself and you do all the, is it a manual process the way you do it? Or do you just pop in a Nespresso and hit the button? No, no. So it is a manual process. You know, we have that little like um, mocha little machine, right? We put in the coffee in there, um, which we, you know, we buy an order online from this Italian company. Um, we use the Lavazza coffee. And uh, and now we make it fresh every morning and it's delicious, yeah. delicious. And um, yeah. And don't get me started on Limoncello too, because I, I love that. Mm, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm an, I'm an espresso guy, but I'm, I'm an Americanized espresso guy. So oh, I, I probably, so you. yeah, I probably enjoy the burn taste that I don't realize I'm even, I'm even getting. So mm, mm. maybe someday yeah. we'll have an espresso the proper way. Okay. Well, let's Deal. talk about the book too, though, outside of the espresso habits. Now okay. I see. So let's tell me about now I see. Yeah, so um, again, this is a book I wrote in 2017, um, and so it, it's going to get raw. I wrote the book at a time where I was in a really, um, I, I hit rock bottom pretty much with, I struggled with some anxiety um, and depression, and like I said, I was sort of in this really tough spot, and um you know, so I talk about that experience in the book. Um, but I also met along the way I met, you know, wonderful people who were sharing their story. And that really just inspired me to get help. Again, you know, I come from a culture where disabilities is seen as like, you're weak, too, right? There's a lot of stigma, but there's a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health as well. So I, I think, you know, I spent my entire life just bottling feelings. Um, so I always think, you know, when I came to America, went to college, and then that's sort of when I hit rock bottom, right? Because I think it finally just hit me. Like after all these years of being told like, hey, you're not good enough, you know, adjusting to all this new stuff, technology and the cane. And so it was really overwhelming. But, you know, the book also talks about, you know, the victories and everything I have done to sort of combat those feelings of, you know, depression or anxiety and how much I take care of myself and how important it is to prioritize mental health and well-being. So the writing process was kind of cathartic for you then to unload some some of those things? Yeah, it really was. And I mean, you know, we see it all the time, right? A lot of these artists are putting music and it's like pretty much they're 
sort of talking about those times, right? So we're obviously very inspired based on our sort of life experiences. It was scary. It was scary because, like I said, I was in that vulnerable state. And I even look back and I read the book and I think to myself, like, wow, how could I have been in that spot? It almost doesn't feel real to me that that was the same person just based on like where I am now and how far I've come. Like I said, it's just like, wow, um, it's already out there, you know, it's in writing. So that's kind of terrifying, too. But uh, but no, you know, I mean, like you said today, John, I mean, the best way to, I think, combat some of the stigma to educate others is by sharing our story and coming out. Um, Our stories don't define us. And, you know, again, at the end of the day, I am much more than my past or um, my experiences, my negative experiences, obviously I've, I've, you know, I've been able to do so much more. There's more, more than our struggles, right? Yes. You're right about that. I think, um, I mentioned to you as well, I'm, I'm in the process of telling my story in, in, in book form as well. Uh, mm-hmm. still at the beginning stages really, but working on it. And it's, it's something that there, there's just things that I want to say, but sometimes it's hard to say to somebody you know, mm. and I think there's some comfort there in, in writing things down and, and at least releasing that out into the world and people can, can read it or, or take from it what they want. But mm. I think it's in some cases easier to, to write things down and disseminate it that way than it is to just say it to somebody or, or, or maybe even, even in the audio medium here podcast too. Mm. It's uh I don't know, it's a different experience and um, I'm, I'm pretty fired up about what I'm doing. And, uh, maybe I can learn something from you in the, the writing process. Cause I'm a terrible writer too. I'm, I'm a terrible listener and a terrible writer. So I don't oh. know, if, I don't know if the <laughs> book will, uh, will materialize the way I want it to, but that's, that's where I am mm. now. Well, you're doing a very good job today. So I don't think you're a terrible listener. Just saying. Yeah. But people that know me better will, um, you know, the intro to the podcast even says that I'm a, I'm a terrible listener. So, oh, no. um, it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm working well, on that too. I've got things right. to work on. I know. Don't we all? Including you know, and, including getting better espresso. Oh, <laughs> that for sure. That for sure. Now that I know you're getting really bad espresso, I'm going to probably bug you about making sure you get it to experience the real, the real espresso. Okay, and you're also working with a group called Eye to Eye. So at Eye to Eye, I actually am a peer support specialist, but I also do some outreach and promotion work for them as well. Um, so we are, Ida I is actually affiliated with uh, Rutgers University, and I actually joined the team last year. Um, so for listeners out there who really don't know what this is, Ida I is a, a phone-based peer support program, which is designed to assist individuals who are blind or visually impaired, as well as their families, right? We understand that blindness doesn't just affect the one person and the individual who has it, but the family as well. And so some of the things that we offer are, you know, a few things, again, are emotional support, uh, information, resources, referrals. Um, Like I said, we offer services for family and loved ones. Um, and we're currently working on some uh, vir- virtual support groups as well. So we'll be starting up for, you know, for individuals, for our clients. Um, so is any, if anyone's listening and is interested in giving us a call, again, we do serve uh, U.S. only. We've been asked that uh, several times. And so the way it works typically is 
you call this phone number that I'm going to share, John, and um, we can also link that somewhere in the podcast. But it's uh, the phone number is 833-932-3931. And so, like I said, you call, you leave a message, and then one of our staff members will call you back within the 24 to 48-hour period. Um, typically, they do a quick intake with you, kind of get a sense of what your needs are, et cetera. And then they usually match you with one of us, a peer support specialist. And so what's really unique, though, about this program is that all the, uh, all the peers, we're all blind or visually impaired. And so, you know, we can understand the struggles, you know, and, and the challenges that come with blindness. And so, um, so it's, it's a wonderful program. Definitely check it out or, and certainly feel free to recommend it to anyone who's blind or visually impaired. Yeah, and that's a free service for the people calling. Yes, it is all you know virtual, and it is it is free, absolutely. So, have you worked with some some interesting people in the last year or so? Yeah, you know, a lot of the folks that I I personally worked with are folks who maybe lost vision have are trying to adjust. I'm also working with someone, a family member as well. They're trying to help them adjust, and they're feeling guilty, and so there's a lot of you know, again, it's it's really important for the family to come together if they can. Um, so I'm working with both. I'm working with family and I'm working with individuals. But, um, you know, and then I'm working with other folks who are maybe, you know, they, they want to figure out and they want to talk about jobs, right? Like as a person with a disability, how can I get a job? And that's, you know, that's a really important topic too. Um, certainly something we can sort of discuss real quick if you're interested, but yeah, that's, um, every, that, that's, that's, that, that would be good advice for anybody in that position. Yeah. Yeah. And a question that, that, that people ask often. So, you know, I do have some background in, uh, career counseling as well. I'm a certified counselor, um, as well, but, you know, I, I guess when I worked with students out of career services, you know, one of the first things I would say, whether you have a disability or not. I always told them, hey, the key to success is definitely determination, motivation, and lots and lots and lots of patience. Um, And so networking, you know, putting yourself out there. And sometimes what happens is when we put ourselves out there, we might get some rejections and rejections hurt. So I'm not going to lie. But as far as like the actual disability, you know, I've done, you know, plenty of interviews and I'm not going to lie, extremely nervous, right? I walk in, I'm wearing these big shades, I'm walking in with a cane, you know, disabilities, society has kind of viewed disability as not really being attractive, right? I mean, hey, I'm covering my eyes and I'm walking with a cane. And now with COVID, we have a mask too, right? So it's like, you know, so you may not even look human at some point. Exactly, right? So, um, you know, I'm not gonna lie, you know, I remember some of my interviews where I was really terrified. I'm like, are they going to judge me? And, you know, the truth is, I, I, I don't know, you know, I didn't get the jobs, unfortunately. Um, and I don't know why. And I don't know if it's, you know, I can't, you know, I, I do know that I think at times what happens is we look at the disability as in blindness in general, we think, okay, is this person needy? Or is she actually capable of doing the job? 
And so for the listeners out there, you know, I don't have the answers. I can't tell you for sure that, and I, I can't assume, we can't assume either, right? I've always made it pretty close, um, you know, with my interviews, but never close enough. So again, I don't know the answer, but what I can tell, you know, folks who are listening today is just the best thing you can do is just focus on yourself focus on your credentials. Um, and if they can't, you know, if they don't want to hire you for those reasons, well, I always say, well, then that's, it's good to know because that's probably not the kind of environment you want to work with anyway. Yeah. I agree with that statement for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and can you get that kind of assistance and guidance through the eye to eye program too? So, um, certainly, like I said, I have the, um, counseling background and, um, career counseling experience background too. So, um, so if, you know, if clients do want to work with me on, let's say I reviewed a resume and I'll, you know, I'm happy to do that too. Um, or just give some advice. So absolutely. We can certainly have those conversations. Um, depending again, we try to meet individuals where they're at. So some people are not even there. Some people are just, just want to get affiliated with the commission for the blind or they just want to learn. Like I, this one in, individual client that I'm working with, he is um, trying to figure out, like, hey, there's all this great technology, but I'm like overwhelmed by it. And so, you know, certainly, um, you know, we just we we meet them where they're at. Okay, Maria Grazia, what is next for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, one of the things that I I want to continue to do is is share my story through whether it's speaking, writing, some of these podcasts, um, you know, we need to continue to come together. We need to continue to educate others about blindness, mental health, disability, um, because I think that's the only way really to do it. That's the only way we can, um, you know, continue to reach more, um, a bigger audience. You know, we talked about the importance of technology, and, and that's the beauty of it, that we are able to reach more and more people. And so, yeah, so that's sort of, you know, my hope. And of course, you know, I talked a lot, a lot about um, eye to eye today. And so I want to continue to help eye to eye grow as well, because it is such an important um, nonprofit. And, and so I hope we continue to, to grow. Yeah, we'll have that phone number in the show notes for the podcast. It'll also be at the website, ambiguouslyblind.com. Um, but let's talk about where we find you and things that you're doing. So your book, Now I See, uh, that's available on Amazon. Is that right? Amazon or my website, which is embracingyourdifferences.com. So you can also find my book there. So the book at your website or Amazon, there's also some speaking things and other things that you do at your website too. What about social media? Yeah. So if you usually go on my website, there's a contact me section. Um, throughout, you'll see I have linked all my social media, for example, Twitter, my Twitter's called Eye on a Cure, Instagram, um, Embracing Differences, Eye on a Cure, my Facebook is just called Embracing Your Differences, and there's also my um, my LinkedIn, and there's my email, which is embracingdifferences01 at gmail.com, uh, so uh, there's definitely a lot of options. Yeah, but probably the simplest would maybe just say embracingyourdifferences.com is probably the one-stop yes. shop for yeah, you'll find all my other, you know, all other ways to contact me. So yes, the website is is the easiest way to contact me. Awesome. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Maria Grazia, thanks a bunch for joining us. It's been a great conversation. And I'm um, looking you. forward to the next time we chat about espresso, I guess, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me, John. It was、uh, had a wonderful time. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe, and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.